Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Nehemiah chapter 1, or you can read along on the screen, or if you had a favorite app, we'll know you're not really on Facebook while you're looking at your phone. And I'm excited about this series that we're jumping into because uh, sometimes we forget as, as New Testament, New Covenant Christians in Christ that all of the truths and beauty and story of the Old Testament is ours. Even as we read in Galatians chapter 3 in this time of peace, if we are in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. This is amazing that we find ourselves in the middle of this story and we, we do ourselves a great disservice to sort of cut off uh, really the majority of the Bible as if it's not relevant to us. And so the book of Nehemiah gives us a great picture of what it means to be a people who find ourselves and our people, our church, and, and in some ways even our city and our country and our culture in a state of disrepair. And how do we rebuild? How do we restore? How do we have genuine reformation? Uh, many people in our culture and our world are great at tearing things down. Some of you may be familiar with this, this big fancy word, deconstruction. Even in philosophy, there's deconstructionism. And basically, it's just like our goal is just to show that there's no foundation to stand on, there's no roots, and, and people actually have professions and make lots of money just debunking and tearing everything down. And in some ways, uh, not to sound like an okay boomer comment, is, is really there's even generational effects that this has of where people kind of are all about being uh, deconstruction type people but aren't willing to take the risk of actually building something. Because as soon as you start to build something, you now set yourself up to be the one who is in power, the one who is the oppressed. So not, nobody wants to do that. Everybody's willing to sign up to be the people who tear stuff down and point out what's wrong. But who wants to sign up to be the people who actually build something for the glory of God? That's risky business. And the book of Nehemiah tells us a lot about the risky business of being rebuilders restores, engaging with God in the work of renewal that He's doing in this world through Jesus. And the good news is, He is. The good news is, is that the fall and all the disorder and disruption in our world hasn't had the last word and will not have the last word. And so as we look into this book, we're going to see what that looks like. And so without further ado and saying more, let's read the first chapter of Nehemiah and then work our way through it this morning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. 
They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today for wisdom from your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would attend now to this time, giving us conviction where we need conviction, giving us comfort where we need comfort. We pray for humility now to see what we don't see, to be willing to know what we don't know we don't know. We pray, God, that even as I speak, Spirit, you would give us all words of encouragement for one another from your word. We pray now that you would help us and grow us to be a people who do the work of the kingdom in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you may be familiar with this trick test that teachers would play on us at school. And we, we caught on to it later on in life. But I remember in kindergarten or first grade, uh, the teacher said, we're, we're going to have a test and see who can get finished with it the fastest. And so it was this big worksheet. It would have like 20 or 30 things on it. And she laid it out on all of our desks. And she said, go. Now, I was a person, for whatever reasons, prided myself with always being the first one to walk up and lay the test on the teacher's desk when it was finished. I didn't care if I made the best grade. There was just like this pride of I'm going to get it done the fastest. And so I remember like, yes, I've been waiting for this day when she's going to actually participate in my game. And so I start going down through that. It's saying, okay, draw this on your paper, uh, answer this question. And then I got down to the end, and the last question said, only do the first question. And she had told us very clearly at the front of the, it was on the paper, and she had said, you need to read all the, all the instructions before you begin. And I thought, well, that's for losers. And I lost. <laughs> very badly. It is really hard to not do anything. Now, some of you in here may be saying, well, welcome come to my life. I'll show you the art of doing nothing. But this morning, we're going to talk about the art of doing nothing, but in a way that's not passive or lazy, but in a way that actually takes maybe the greatest effort and the greatest wisdom and the greatest godly restraint. We're going to talk about the art of doing nothing that is essential if we want to truly be a part of the rebuilding work of God and the kingdom of Jesus in this world. So many times we, we, we have to do this searching work that while we want to do something often can be a loving motive, but at other times a selfish motive. As we think about this, we're thinking first of all in our own hearts when it comes to change and unrest in our own lives, and, and we see it. And we're like, I just want to change this. And we're so like, I want to do something. We think about our homes, our families, relationships, parents, children, spouses, roommates, significant others. When we think about relationships in the neighborhoods that our missional community serves in our city, and if we're watching the news, our country as a whole. We want to do something. Sometimes the best thing to do first is to do nothing well. Again, sometimes there's loving motives and sometimes there's selfish. If you've ever had someone whom you had a real uh, a disagreement with or a lack of reconciliation and you shared with them your heart and their response was this, just tell me what I need to do. I do that. Just tell me what I need to do. You know that in that moment you usually don't maybe feel super loved because usually it's the message underneath it is just tell me what I have to do so we can get this over with and I can get back to my life as normal. Not just tell me what to do so that you'll actually feel more loved 
and so that we'll actually enjoy deeper relationships. That's a selfish type of let's do this because what you're really saying is, let's get it over with. You've disrupted my peace and my comfort by bringing your reality to my life, and I don't like that. But I know I just can't come out and say, don't tell me if something's wrong. And so I say, let's just get it over with. Well, Nehemiah gives us this pathway in this book to rebuilding, but it doesn't begin again with us doing something because the gospel does not begin with us doing something. The gospel does not begin with us at all. The good news of the gospel begins with God. The gospel is first and foremost not about who we are and what we do, but about who He is and what He's done. And when we rush to what we're going to do before we sit with who God is and what He's done, then we run ahead of the test, so to speak, and we're working hard, feverishly trying to get everything done, and then missing the point. So rebuilding, renewing, reforming a life, family, church, or society begins with doing nothing well. But it's not doing nothing passively. So what does it look like? The first thing, before you do anything, verses 1 through 3, I think, show us this. Rebuilding takes really listening. Really listening to others. And for some of you, nothing feels more like a waste of time than listening, maybe. But Nehemiah really listens. He doesn't ask questions to protect himself or to keep himself comfortable or to just get it over with. No, we're going to see his listening is going to walk him into one epic mess of great risk and great work. But he starts with the art of doing nothing by really listening, which is a great something. Notice verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, the month of Chislev, the 20th year, Susa the citadel. What is all this about? Susa the citadel was the winter residence of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. Chislev tells us here, this is the winterish months, November, December. Again, Susa the citadel is where he would have been. And the reason he would have been where the king was is what verse 11 told us. He was cupbearer to the king. What was a cupbearer? Well, a cupbearer was still a, a servant or slave of sorts, but this was a very prestigious place of service. He would have been the guy who you saw by the king. Even though he was an Israelite by ethnicity, he had been exalted to this place of where he kind of lived his life in the presence and the safety and security of the king. It was probably as high as a Jewish person could have got in security and safety if he just kept his mouth shut and did his job. But we notice who he really is. Notice verse 2. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So Nehemiah hasn't forgot who his people really are. Now, this would have been hard for him. Likely serving that close to the king, most commentators say Nehemiah would have been made a eunuch. Now those who don't know what that means, he would have been emasculated as a man because he would have been in such proximity to the king's harem of wives. And so it's sort of like the way a king would take that servant and say, I'm going to make sure there's no fooling around here with my wives. And the way he did that was through a, a very humiliating physical operation upon Nehemiah. Nehemiah would have been undergone then the, the most deepest of assimilation projects of this foreign kingdom so that his identity was erased. Because also as a Jew, we know a lot of who he is was attached to this whole rite of circumcision where his identity as one who had been set apart as the people of the God was seen in a very physical way. And yet Nehemiah's name means Yahweh has comforted. Yahweh, the personal king, the personal God, the personal Lord of Israel. 
He knows who his brothers are. He remembers who his people are. This is why he asks about it. He's like, tell me about them. He asks concerning the Jews who had escaped, and then, and then that's defined for us, those who had survived the exile. So again, we don't have all the time this morning in the world or we could give this whole rich history, but the, the people of Judah have been exiled. They've been taken away, that is, from the land of Israel. And many had survived that ordeal. And many had gone back, if you look back into the book of Ezra, which really is just like kind of part one of this two-part book, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Ezra's led some of the captives back. And so Nehemiah's like, how are they doing? How's my family doing? How's my kinsmen doing? How are my brothers doing? He cares about his people, but also he cares and asks about the place. So notice, he asks about the people, and then it says, and concerning Jerusalem. People matter first, but places matter too. And particularly in the history of redemption, Jerusalem has this unique identity. At that point in the history of redemption, in this very physical way, as unique in the story of Israel as its center. But I want us all, as we go through the book of Nehemiah, and if you want to have a little side conversation, we can, about how fulfillment takes place, is we know that when Jesus comes into the world, and he calls these 12 disciples, not by accident, because it's the 12 children of Israel, it's the people of God that he is in the act himself of rebuilding, of renewing, of restoring, that he tells them that as they unite with him in the kingdom of God, what does he say you are? He says you are a city on a hill. Now sometimes we may just say, oh, that means we're just this city up here that overlooks everything and shows the world an example. And that's true. But in the story of the Bible, what was the city on the hill? It was Jerusalem. Jesus is telling us, now my people who gather in my name will be the city of God in this world. This is why we can't just say, oh, that was some old message for Israelites of that day. Yes, it has a, a unique and particular spot in the history of redemption. But Jesus comes now and says, this all applies to you. And so Nehemiah cares about the place. Because the place is bound up in the people. And the place is bound up in the promises of God. And what does he hear when he listens about the people? He hears they are in great trouble and shame. He hears that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Most likely this is not a reference simply back to what happened at the initial destruction of Nebuchadnezzar in the first time of the exile. But, but more likely it seems because of the way this like, just devastates Nehemiah. If it would have just been, hey, report, Nehemiah, things are just how they were that we've always known, probably he's not going to be thrown down in this new shock and devastation. But what would happen is, if you read in the book of Ezra, they've already started to rebuild this wall before. But the locals, the enemies of God, have destroyed it. They broke the wall down, they burnt the gates. And we don't live in this type of world anymore in our culture, but that, that's not just a symbol of like vandalism. It's there's no safety and security. A city that has no walls is an unsafe place. It's unguarded. A city that has no gates is a place where just a, someone can walk in and wreak havoc. This was a big deal. And what is amazing is Nehemiah didn't have to care. He was the cupbearer to the king. He could have said, wow, that really stinks for you guys. But Nehemiah is not asking as someone who's just wanting to read the morning news while he has his cup of coffee and then go on about his nice day. He cares that his people are unsafe, they're vulnerable, oppressed, powerless. They're at home, but they're not at home. I think I've shared this some of you before because when I think of my grandma, the grandma I called Granny, she was quite a character. And one uh, designating part of her story in her life, she's not with us anymore, was she had a, a bad sciatic nerve problem. 
I think that's something through here. Some of you may have that or know about it. So, but my granny, if you ask her how you're doing during not just the season around that, the operation she blamed all that on, but really towards probably the last half of her life, or at least third, you better, you better pull up a seat. Like if, if you're doing, if you're thinking we're just going to do this, probably like some of us did today, walked in, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? You know, the pleasantries that Darth Vader says to dispense with, let's just smile and talk. Like she's not going to go there. She was in that season of life where she spent a lot of time by herself. And if you, you, you got to know that if I ask her how she's doing, I, I'm making an investment. <laughs> Like, this is not just, I'm doing fine, how are you? No, to ask, how are you doing to Granny, was an investment. And you had a choice then to, to say, I'm not asking. Because <laughs> you're actually going to tell me. It may involve a whole history of sciatic nerves. But it could involve something else. It could lead to how other people in the family are doing. I think this is how many of us face a fallen world in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own broken relationships in the world. And even as, as discomforting as it means sometimes, sadly, for church people is to talk about the things everybody's talking in the world. For, it's weird, and it? it's like, well, we've talked about that all out there, but let's not do it in here. These issues of racial reconciliation is we want to ask but not ask. Or we learn what not to ask. And we especially don't want to ask things that might require an investment. So, we just be quiet. Or we say, could you just tell me what I can do, please? So I can get this over with and just back to my life as normal. Could I just go back to being the cupbearer to the king? I mean, I'm all right. I know it's bad over there. Things on fire. Walls broken down. But right here, I'm okay. It's not perfect, but I'm okay. Why did you tell me all that, Hananiah? Certain men from Jerusalem. Trying to stir up trouble. See, I could mow my granny's yard, but I couldn't fix her sciatic nerve. I could just listen. That irritates us sometimes. But sometimes that's the reality of where we're at. Man, I wish I could fix that sciatic nerve, but right now I can just listen. So we've got to learn what it looks like to listen before doing. Not self-protective asking either. You know, where you like have these carefully crafted leading questions. You've talked to people like this before. You may be this person at certain times. You're asking a question, not like a listener, but like a lawyer. Like you're coming loaded with all your statistics, all your assumptions, all your presuppositions, all your conclusions, and then you're asking the question that you're ready to answer. You know what I'm talking about. Asking questions that you're ready to give the answer to already. That's not listening. That's wanting other people to listen to you. Or self-promoting asking. So again, you're asking that someone else would give you a pathway to be the hero of the story. Or there's self-excusing asking, where you ask something, but you tangle a knot so tight in your question that at the end of it, the way they answer, you've got it set up so that you're off the hook no matter what. But really listening before we doing is risky. It means that I really ask people, how are you doing now? And you don't pull out your watch, you pull out a chair. Do you have the margin in your life for that? Because if you don't have that margin, I would say you're too busy. And I know it's the truth with me. I said this to my brother yesterday in the middle of preparing this and coming to the end. My brother, Cassie, will tell you, ask all the questions. Of course, Cassie does too. And I'm preaching this from a place of weakness, if y'all don't know me. 
Like, I literally said this to him. I just try to not ask people a lot of questions because I'm afraid they'll tell me something I don't want to hear. I mean, I just got to own that. I'm starting to see that in my life. Like, if I leave today and I ask you guys, hey, how did, how did you experience this Sunday morning? I open myself up for critique. But that's real asking. If I ask my coworkers, so how, how, do you, how do you like working with me at work? What's that like? That's scary. They've probably never been asked that before. This would probably give a reason for a gospel explanation. Right? I'm so secure in Jesus, I can ask questions like that. If we ask, ask people in our culture of other ethnicities, hey, what's your experience like living in Cleveland, Tennessee? Again, not with our, not with our, our rebuttals stuck in our back pocket ready to present, but just I just want to learn. I might not agree, but I just want to listen. If we ask our spouses or those we're in relationships with, hey, how do you experience being in a relationship with me? This is scary stuff. This is anything but passivity. This is the art of doing nothing well. We ask about people, we, we ask about places. We, we as God's people need a, a bigger doctrine of creation. Somewhere within the history of the church, we, we began to think that, that God messed up in Genesis where he created embodied people in a physical world. And so our, our gospel somewhere along the way became, man, I can't wait till God takes my disembodied soul up to live on clouds. But if you read the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, the whole story is about I created this world for you to live in for my glory, to enjoy it. And one day, it's not so much about going up, it's the new Jerusalem is going to come down. And I think we'll probably ride mountain bikes in the new creation and enjoy God's good world. But we can forget that that makes a difference for how we live now. There's a lady that lives just a few streets over, and I was asking her, trying to practice this at one point, what do you think about our neighborhood? What do you think about what's going on here? And she had a lot of negative things to say about the things that I thought were going well. That's just a part of it. We got a safe pathway to school being built down Chippewa because so kids can walk to school because really soon, if you live within a mile of the school, there's a parent responsibility ordinance, and so it basically means the buses don't run within a mile of your school. It's really tough for a neighborhood like this where many of the children walk to school and there's hilly roads and there's no, path, no sidewalks. So the city, partnering with nonprofits, is putting a safe pathway to school. And I just thought she would be excited about that. And she was like, that ain't going to help nothing. Well, you just got to open yourself to listen to that. So listen to that, disagree, right, in the back of my head. I disagree, but I want to hear what you have to say. But then she said something. She said, you know what we need? Is we, she pointed to a yard next door to hers that was overgrown. And she said, we need somebody to help these people who are seniors and disabled to mow yards. And I'm thinking, that sounds kind of boring. New sidewalk, that looks good. But she then tied this connection from overgrown yards to drug use and a lack of safety in the neighborhood. And this is, what, this is what she did. She said, when you live in a broke down place, and she's in the middle of this. She's not speaking above it. She's speaking in her own experience. She said, when you live in a broke down place and you walk out to this overgrown yard, that doesn't just communicate to you something about this place. It communicates to you something about yourself. And when you live in that shame, You've got to deal with it some way. And if somebody offers you some meth or a drug to help you just forget the shame in your life that she said that yard is a reminder of, 
then you might just take it. It's not just meth. For many people in our society, whether it's this neighborhood or the nicest one, it's, it's like prescription drugs that are, that are good when used well. But when you're having a hard time, you think, what's a few extra going to hurt? This is why we do this in our missional community and some and others is we mow for seniors disabled and we'll assist those who are well-bodied to use our equipment to do that. It's not just so we can say we're doing something. It's because the people sit in shame and the walls are broken down. I want to encourage all our MCs, all of our people here, whether you're connected in our church beyond this gathering or not, to ask yourself how you can listen. Not to get it over with, but to love. We said a lot on that point. We're going to have to pick it up as usual. The next thing, before you do anything, not just really listen, but rebuilding takes sacrificial lamenting. Sacrificial lamenting. Notice we see this in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the first thing we see here is he really heard. Now it's a difference to listen and to really hear. Because when you really hear, it, it affects you. So he sits down. What a, what a picture. When we hear, sometimes we run away from it. I don't want to think about that anymore. Just back to life as usual. Or we run into action. So it's, it's either flight or fight type of situation. Or freeze. But he sits down. He's not freezing, though he weeps. He feels it. His heart's been touched. He mourns for days. It's his grief. For days. It's, he, he, he's stepping in here to this grieving process. He's a picture of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Interesting again, Nehemiah's name, Yahweh, has comforted. He continues fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, this is really important when we think about fasting. Some of you in here may have never fasted, and it's oftentimes when we think of fasting, we just think of like, I'm not going to eat a meal, or I'm not going to be on social media this, this month or whatever. But it's actually, in some ways, it's a combination of both of those in this ancient Near Eastern world. For the ancient Near Eastern world, meals were not just when you when you fed yourself. So like some of you are real workers and you're like, I don't stop to eat, you know? I'm, I'm going and I've got a sandwich here in my hand while I walk by, but I'm just keep going. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, meals, meals were everything in terms of your social relating with people. I mean, everything stopped and, and we're not talking about 30, 45 minute deals. You can go research this yourself if you don't believe me. We're talking sometimes hour to three hour kind of hangouts. So when you fast, you're not just saying, I'm going to show how serious I am about this by not eating. I think sometimes that's how we think all fasting is. I'm going to show how, how concerned I am by not eating. No, it's a reorientation of your life. It's saying, I'm not going to do normal anymore because it's not normal. I'm not going to pretend. So while everybody else is going to come together and, and sit around and, and act like things are good, I'm going to get on my face before God. Takes it to a whole nother level because now this is not just something you check off your list. It's a sacrificial lamenting. And he did it all, we see, in the presence of God, before the God of heaven. This is a, this is a phrase we know from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. It's also a phrase that was used of, of other pagan gods and idols. And so in a sense, this is, this is kind of rubbing it in the face of the nations that were against God, and, but it's also saying there is one true God who is supreme. I didn't do this before men like the Pharisees did. It's before God. I didn't want everybody else out there to see, oh, I'm the one that's really serious because I gave up the meals and my social connection for a while. No, I did this before God. 
Sacrificial lamenting is not trying to justify yourself as the person who's most concerned. Sometimes it seems like people are, are acting to say, who can show they care about something the most? Liam, Nehemiah cares, but he's not competing with other people for the act of caring. He's doing this before God. It's not about him. It's not about others. It's about God. One of the ways that I know that I'm not going to do well in a diet, exercising, or spiritual discipline is when I say these words. I'll start on Monday. I'm the king of starting on Monday. I'm the king of starting next month. I'm the king of when it gets too far into the year, I'll start on New Year's. And then I'm the king of, well, New Year's, we're going to get together. So I'll start on the Monday after New Year's. And so the cycle begins. You know what works? I'm starting now. I'm starting now. That's when you know you're serious. That's when you know that God has gripped your heart. I'm starting now. Not when you talk about praying with people, you talk about praying for people, oh honey, we should pray together more. Why don't we start that next week? No, when you care about something, when something's hit your heart, you start now. Let's pray now. Let's act now. This shows you've really heard. This shows you've entered into to these, these words that sometimes we trip over, but this lament here is flowing from a biblical empathy. He's, he's not with the people yet, but he's with the people. He's not with them in person, but his heart sure is. His heart sure is. Only then can you sit with someone rightly when you've heard. And you need to ask them. Add this to your everyday life. Ask people, am I hearing you well? Don't assume you ever heard somebody right. We usually don't. I never hardly do. Ask my wife. She's like, I very clearly told, said this. Well, I very clearly interpreted it very differently. It's good to say, am I hearing you well? I think one of the greatest things I've ever heard in education was if you're going to give somebody else's position, you need to make sure they would agree with you on that position, even if you disagree with it. There's still room for disagreement, but would you agree with me? Your coworkers, in your family, your relationships with spouses, your relationships, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm struggling right here. Step one, am I hearing you right? Again, these issues of racial reconciliation, we, we, just, we just take the bait. We take the bait. What we need to do is ask people, the other from us, hey, am I hearing you right here? I'm making some assumptions, no doubt. I'm coming up with some conclusions. But before I do, I want to know, am I hearing you well? Am I representing your position rightly? That's called humility. That's called being with folks. And then we need to learn the biblical spiritual disciplines of lament. Sitting down. That doesn't have to be a physical sitting down. But what it means is, I'm not in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry. We don't got to get this done so I can get on with life. Weeping. No, we don't all cry the same. Some of you cry when O'Yeller died, and some of you don't. I don't think that means you don't have a heart. But as humans, we're all created as emotional beings. And some of us don't cry for reasons that maybe we need to deal with. Fasting and praying. Again, not just saying, I'm not going to eat a breakfast I usually don't eat anyway so that I can feel better about myself. But what does it look like to reorient my life to say, I'm not going to pretend like things are normal right now. 
and all attuned before the God of heaven. Which leads us to our last point through these last verses, 5 through 10. Before you do anything, rebuilding means really listening. Before you do anything, rebuilding means sacrificial lamenting. Before you do anything, rebuilding means above all, in spite of how much time we give it in proportion to the rest of the sermon right now, it means looking to God. This is what these last verses, 5 through 10, are all about. The first thing Nehemiah does as he does this, he gives us his picture, is he does not keep looking this way, he looks this way. This is a game changer. God has not called us to grieve without hope. God has not called his people to have a a continuous woe is me reality. Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone. But he put his gaze upon the holy God of Israel and he was lifted up and called into action. It's very similar here to, uh, to Nehemiah. As he puts his eyes upon the Lord. And the first thing he does in verse 5 is he prays the character of God. It doesn't start with him. It doesn't even start with them. It starts with God. He prays the character of God, great and awesome, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. Second, in verse 6, he prays the identity of God's people. So now establishing who God is in prayer. Because prayer is not just about sending up our grocery list to God to check off. It's about a communion with Him and the reality of His personhood and promises. And so Nehemiah appeals to God based on who He is and then based on who the people are. The prayer of your servant for the people of Israel, your servants. The third thing he prays in verse 7 is he prays with a confession of sin that is filled with this striking solidarity with the people in view of the holiness of God. Notice, we have did this. And and he's saying here in verses 6 and 7, I and my family have did this. What? Where's Nehemiah been? He's not been there. Wait a minute, Nehemiah. Don't let them lump you in with a hole, buddy. Western Christians have this individualized view of of responsibility that we get all bent out of shape whenever we start to pray we. Or talk about we. And then we come up with some really strange, convoluted New Covenant theology that says we're no longer a we when Jesus, the Lord of the New Covenant, taught us to pray, not my Father, but our Father. Not forgive me my sins, but our sins. Fourth, he prays in verses 8 and 9, the promises of God, so the character of God, the identity of God's people, the confession of sin with God's people. And now he prays the promises of God in verses 8 and 9. There's consequences and curses to those who would disobey the covenant. But there is a promise of grace and mercy and redemption that all who repent and return to God will find themselves a part of His great regathering and rebuilding. Fifth, verse 10, the fifth thing he prays is God's redemption. Remember, God, these are your redeemed people who you came down in Egypt with your strong hand. So this is the... $5 word, anthropomorphism, right? Showing the uh, God of spirit and putting it in physical terms. You came down with that strong hand and great power and you, your people were in this place of dis, disrepute and shame and Israel as slaves and you just came down and you gathered them up and you pulled them out of all that. That's who you are, God. That's who we are. That's our story. He prays it. And then the last thing he does pray for in verse 11 is for the success that only God could give out of the risky steps he's about to take as one who centers his life on the fear of the Lord. So in the sight of this man, and we're going to see, preview, Nehemiah, this cupbearer to the king who has this place of prominence, but his really place of prominence is attached to him keeping his mouth shut and just letting the status quo go. But now he's going to have to ask this king for something. And we'll see, the king said no to this already before to somebody else. 
of saying, God, I got a God-sized vision and a God-sized call here. If you don't give me success, we're done for. It's a prayer of total dependence. In all this we see, Nehemiah has a very God-centered approach to what rebuilding looks like. It's not man-centered. It's not based on the wisdom of the world. It's, it's God. I want to show this in a weird way right now that'll involve me moving the microphone. So, don't get too excited. All right. I probably should click this off for a second. Thank you for being patient with our time. Can y'all hear me a little bit? Okay, so I'm going to button my shirt. I'm going to make it look really good. With this one, I'm going to have, I'm going to be super sweet and nice, gentle and caring and make sure this button feels so loved. Oh, I love you, button. Now with this button, I'm going to be really intellectual. So I've got all my statistics. I've got all my data. This is the button we're saying. Let's just stick to the facts. Oh my goodness, why, why does everybody have to be ruled by emotions? You, you button, I'm not calling you precious because that's stupid. We're just dealing with the facts. Well, this is the button. It's like, let's find the Bible verses even. And, and on and on, we don't have time. But what's the problem? Can y'all tell? I ain't got the right button started with. This is what we're saying. We can do this work of rebuilding in our culture. And we can be really nice and sweet to everybody and make sure everybody feels heard and loved. We can have all the right statistics and information and we can say it's just about the facts, what happened to logic in our country, we're being overtaken by postmodern liberal, liberalism, I can't talk, or we can say, you know, just let's not, let's just stick to the gospel. Let's just stick to the Bible. But if we don't start with God, it doesn't matter all our intentions down here. It doesn't matter our strategies. It doesn't matter our, our even at times, right interpretations of certain verses of the Bible. It starts with on our faces before God. He's central. He's God. Nobody else. No political party's God. No tribe that I feel like I'm a part of on social media or the internet. No family allegiance. Nothing. God is first. God is center. This is why Nehemiah is saying, those who delight to fear your name. The fear of the Lord, living in the fear of the Lord, is what it means to live God-centered. He is the ultimate reality in any conversation, and any situation, in my own heart, in my own family, in my fight club, my missional community, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, in the world. Martin Luther is famous for saying, and he probably didn't even say it because they just say he said everything, that we are to, to live our lives reading, the, having the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. But he's not saying one of these is more true than the other. He's just saying, we've got to bring the reality of God and His presence and truth into all of our lives. This is what we're called to do. And it's going to feel like nothing to some of us at times. We're going to get to a lot of the somethings as we go through this book. But we've got to start here. Rebuilding means really listening. First. Before we do anything. It means sacrificial lamenting first. And it means looking to God first. Father, thank you that you've came to us in Jesus. And we pray now as we come to the table that you would help us, Lord, to rest in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, if you've ever thought that a pastor uses end-of-sermon prayers as an attempt to finish his last point, sometimes that happens. But as we come to the table today, I've, I've intentionally right now here 
I want to, to finish this in a way that leads us there. As we think about Nehemiah and he leads the way, the reality is, is that Nehemiah will see as a broken, imperfect person himself. His confession of sin is not simply one of trying to be a nice guy that doesn't make people feel alone. He's saying it sincerely. The good news is, is we have a better Nehemiah. The good news is, is that while Nehemiah had Egypt and Sinai, we have a better history because we have Calvary and the empty tomb. The reality is that we not only have this, this poetic description of the mighty hand of God coming down in history, is we have the real incarnated Son of God who stepped into this world, who was the mighty hand of God. We have one who really listened. That is, he really cared about the situation we're in. And if you're here this morning or you're watching or you listen later, Jesus really cares about where you're at right now. He's not asking so you get it over with. He's asking he wants to know. He's not pulling out his watch. He's pulled up a chair. He lamented like Nehemiah. It says he, he's, he looked at the city of Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, that I would have gathered you. Some might debate whether our Lord still weeps, but we know he wept at Lazarus' tomb even though the victory was just at hand. And so however you want to interpret that, he's with you. He laments the sorrow in our world. Jesus looked up. Oh, he was not only God, but God-centered. He loved humanity humanity but he knew the best way to love humanity was to love God first but ultimately he did all these things because he was lifted up similar to to, to Nehemiah he prayed and father glorify your name as I go forth in this mission that wasn't just a risk it was the reality of his death but he went there for us. He died for our sins. As we come to the table, we're going to take the bread and the cup, and it's a picture of Jesus' body given for us. Of how actively he stepped into our mess, but many people in theology has called his work on the cross his passive work. Not because it was in his passivity, but because he was willing just to hang there in our place. He wasn't doing anything but being there. Suffering for our sin. Taking the wrath of God upon himself that we deserved. And yet we see that God answered his prayer because he is risen. And so the other part of the Lord's table is the promise of the new covenant that he will give his people his spirit so that we can live in his ways. So I'd ask us all now if we would just would stand and come to the table and take the bread in the cup and then come back to your seats. And before you take it, uh, we'll le I'll lead you in doing that together. But let's go to the table at this time.